Turn your Bibles, Hebrews chapter number 10 this morning. And man, what a blessing to get to be in the house of God. I'm so thankful to get to be here today. I'm thankful that you get to be here with us today. And I'm looking forward to what God is going to do. We need the Lord. We need the Lord. It's not just it'd be nice. We need the Lord. We need Him in our lives day by day. And I'm thankful we've got Him, aren't you? And there's a lot of people out here looking for something that we've already got. I'm thankful we've got, we're in Christ, amen? And I'm thankful we've got everything we need in Him. We don't have to look for a, for a movement or a moment or a ministry to give that to us. We've already got it in Christ. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Man, I'm thankful for that this morning. And I'm looking forward to what God's going to do. Hebrews chapter 10, I'd like to begin reading in verse 19. We'll read down to verse 25. Hebrews chapter number 10, verse number 19. The Bible says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated... I'm going to read that again. By a new and living way. A living way. A living way. Not, not through our death, but through his death we have life by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. Let's pray. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for the word of God. Lord, I'm thankful we have a sure foundation, an anchor steadfast for the soul. I'm thankful that we can come to your word this morning. We find something that is immutable, unchanging. Lord, it's the same as it was yesterday, and it'll be the same tomorrow. And Lord, I'm thankful that as we come to your word, we can approach it with a reverence, and we'll find in it fertile ground for you to do a work in us. Now, help us to have the right attitude to the Word of God this morning. Help us to be receptive of it, Lord. Help us in an attitude of self-examination, humility, to approach Your Word, Lord, seeking to hear Your voice in these pages. Lord, seeking for You to do a work that would redound unto eternity. Lord, we love You. We thank You for what You have already done, Lord. And if if we just stopped now, we'd have enough that You've already done to praise You through all of eternity. But, Lord, we're a poor and needy people, so we ask for you once again to move and to work in this place in a way that would give you glory, and we'll give you that praise and glory. Lord, we love you, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. The book of Hebrews is one of my favorite books of the Bible. The theme of the book of Hebrew is better things. All throughout the book of Hebrews, the key word is the word better. Man, I don't just want what's good. I want what's better. Amen. It bothers me. You go into these restaurants and things change. Amen. We live in a changeable world. I go into some of my favorite restaurants. Ain't my favorite restaurants anymore. They've changed. You say, well, preacher, you know, it's still pretty good. I don't want pretty good. I want better. Amen. Listen, I'm tired of global Marxists trying to feed me bugs and chemicals. I don't, I want better. Amen. I don't, don't give me no bugs to eat. Amen. 
I want better. Amen. I, I don't just want what's good. I want what's better. And so I like the book of Hebrews because it's not just about a good thing. It's about a better thing. And all through the book of Hebrews, you'll find this word better showing up over and over and over again. The book of Hebrews, in chapter 2, it speaks of a better message. He's in last days, uh, you know, he's spoken unto us by his son from heaven. Amen. In old times, hey, listen, he, he spake by the prophets, but now he's spoken unto us by his son. I'm glad, hey, it speaks of a better message. Chapter 3 and 4 speaks of a better household. Talks about the household that Moses built, speaking of the nation of Israel. Then it talks about the household of faith. Man, I'm thankful. I'm glad to be a member of a New Testament church. Hey, it's a high and holy privilege to be a member of a New Testament church. Amen. It speaks of a better household. It speaks in chapter 5 about a better priest. Amen. I'm glad, hey, I've got a better priest than they had through the sons of Levi. I've got a better priest than they had through the sons of Aaron. I've got a better priest than they had through an old system. A better priest. Not only that, it speaks of a better sacrifice. Amen. I'm glad, hey, listen, there's a better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and of goats. There's a better sacrifice. It speaks of a better atonement. Amen. I, listen, I, I've got my sins, ooh, my sins are more thoroughly forgotten and vanquished than any New or Old Testament saint ever experienced. In the Old Testament, hey, listen, they were in a bag at the bottom of the sea behind God's back as far as the east is from the west. But now the Hebrews epistle tells me they are gone. He will remember them no more. Man, I'm thankful. There's a better atonement. There's a better adoption. Amen. I, I, I'm part of something bigger and better and greater uh, than what I could have been in the Old Testament. There's a better adoption. Hey, listen, I've been adopted and given a status in the family of God. One of the problems that the Pharisees had with Christ whenever He came and began to minister is He talked about God as His Father. You and I today, we don't even blink about calling God our Heavenly Father. It don't even sound odd to us, but it sounded odd to them because for them the notion that they were a part of the family of God was an alien concept to them. And they thought it a high form of blasphemy that He would call God His Father. Well, God was His Father, and I'm glad He's my Father too. Amen? Speaks of a better adoption. Speaks of a better covenant. Amen? Hey, listen, I'm on better terms with God today than they were in the Old Testament. And I'm not suggesting they couldn't be saved. They could in the Old Testament. They could have righteousness imputed unto them. But listen, I like the agreement of of grace better than the agreement of law. I'd rather be under grace than under the law. Amen. Uh, There's a better covenant. Hey, there's a better theme nowadays. What is the theme? The theme is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Hey, listen, that's my song, and I'm going to sing it on into glory, is that He died for me. A better theme. Not only that, it speaks of a better country. Amen. Hey, listen, my citizenship is in heaven of a better country. Hey, and you say, well, preacher, that country in the Old Testament is pretty good. That wasn't the country Abraham was looking for because he never found it. The Bible says he looked for a city whose builder and maker was God. These all died in the faith, not having received the promises. Hey, but they were following after. I'm glad we're part. I got a citizenship in a better country. We spend all of our time bemoaning the problems in our country, and we've got a lot of them. I think anybody would be blind to not admit that. I'm sure glad. Hey, listen, you say, preacher, what about that? I've got dual citizenship. I got dual citizenship. I am a citizen in this country. That's at least how I answer it every time on the forums. Amen. But I got citizenship in a better country. 
I got citizenship in a better country. And then not only that, it speaks of a better resurrection. Amen? Hey, listen, I'm glad the hope of the resurrection that we experience today in this dispensation of grace is better than any concept of resurrection they had in the Old Testament. They hoped that the body would be raised. Well, praise God, the body's going to be raised. Hey, but the spirit and soul have been raised already in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when you read through the book of Hebrews, you'll find the theme is a better way. And I will tell you, it is not just a good way. It is a better way. And it is not even only a better way, but in fact, the way to God through Jesus Christ is the best and only way. So when we come to Hebrews chapter number 10, what we find is really the climax of the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. We often associate Hebrews with chapter 11, and there's nothing inappropriate with that. But if you follow the logical argument from chapter 1 on, you'll find that the, the, the pitch moment, the crisis moment, the climax moment, the culmination of all that he's been saying is actually in our text this morning. He summarizes what we have today. And I want to preach to you on this thought, the blessings of a better way. You say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, I'm saying this. We don't have no second-rate Christianity. All over Christianity today, people are looking, waiting, hoping, praying for something to happen. And I'm here to tell you today that what happened 2,000 years ago on Calvary's Hill is what has happened and what's going to happen and what we can rest in and dwell in and gain help from. Notice three things this morning and then we'll be done. I told you a moment ago that this passage is really the culmination. I really, when I first started to prepare this message, I had a different title for it. And the title was going to be this, Ready for Anything. Because when you come to this chapter, Paul begins to review the things that he has been dealing with and he's going to say that these things become the foundation of our ability to, in Christ, face anything that we uh, come into in life. Can I tell you, we have all we need already. Anything that you or I face, we are already well equipped to be able to handle in Christ through Him, through what He's given to us. And so the first thing I want you to notice this morning is the reality of a better way. Now, I will tell you, time would fail us to enumerate all the wonderful things that we have in Christ. I mean, if I just told you, take out a pen and paper and start at number one and we'll just quit when we're done, we'd just have to quit when Jesus comes back, pick it up in heaven, amen, because we would never say everything that is wonderful about Him. But speaking of this New Testament dispensation, this way of grace that we are living in today, there are three things that Paul references that define this better way. Why is it a better way today? And why can we have the relationship with God that we can have. Look with me at verse 19. He says this, having therefore. Now, I told you just even I think on Wednesday night, the therefores are there for a reason. He has laid out an argument. Now he's saying, here's the summary of all that I've been saying. I've been speaking to you of this better way. And this is what we have. Notice the first thing. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Say, preacher, what's the first reality of this better way? The first is this, that a price has been paid. 
Paul has already described how that the Old Testament form of worship was a revolving door of sacrifices, none of which ever had the ability, the integrity, the potency uh, to be able to vanquish a person's sins. And so what God did was send His own Son as a blessed, precious, spotless Lamb to die in the place of lost, broken, dying sinners. And the price was paid for our sin debt. We understand instinctively that when a person transgresses someone, a debt is incurred. Uh, We might not like to believe that sometimes. We might like to imagine that uh, when people do things that harm another person, well, it's just forgive and forget and, and there's nothing that has to be rectified. But you and I both know and understand if you do something wrong against someone, all of a sudden, until that thing is made right, there'll be a distance between you. In many ways, this is a poor paltry shadow of a spiritual reality because do you understand that every single person born into this world was born estranged and alienated from God? The Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, Your sins have separated you from God. And every person is born in that natural condition of having a sin debt between them and God. There's a problem between them and God. One of the great marks of New Age mysticism is the notion of a relationship with God without regeneration and rebirth. They want to ignore the sin debt problem. Can I tell you this? If anybody had a vested interest in ignoring your sin problem, it was God. Because He gave more than you ever gave to deal with that sin problem. But He did not ignore it. He did not dismiss it. He did not disregard it or run around it. He, uh, Oh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believed in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying God didn't ignore your sin problem. God did something about your sin problem. Modern religion wants to ignore the sin problem. There couldn't be anything more disconsonant with the activity and nature of God than to pretend as though there is no sin problem. God doesn't pretend there's no sin problem. He did something to address man's sin problem. The Old Testament, they sought and hoped for the ability of those blood sacrifices to do something to assuage the wrath of God. None of them ever could. Uh, They would stay the wrath of God for only a year, but pretty soon there'd have to be another bullock. Pretty soon there'd have to be another sacrifice. But I'm glad, hey, listen, (laughs) the Bible says He hath appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. I'm glad, hey, a price has been paid. And that changed the footing of man's relationship with God, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter in to the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Then there's a second thing, verse 20. By a new and living way, which He hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. I'd say, number one, a price has been paid, but number two, a path has been laid. Now we have a path to the most intimate relationship with God imaginable. All throughout the Old Testament form of worship, one of the uh, sort of themes and truths that sounded like a bell tolling in the hearts and minds of Israel was a prohibition of relationship or of fellowship with God. Now, again, I'm not suggesting they didn't pray. I'm not suggesting they didn't have a relationship with God. Uh, Those that did, did so by faith, not by works of the law. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Uh, But I am saying this, that all of their form of worship, 
was centered around this notion of excluding man because of his sin problem. And there was no more palpable representation of this than the holiest of holies, that third compartment or region area of the tabernacle into which no one could go except one man and then only under the most rigorous and strictest of terms. And that was the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. And the thing that kept him out of that room was a large ornate veil or curtain that hung in between those two places. We could spend time speculating, pontificating on uh, things that we've learned from historians and rabbis about the nature of that. But suffice it to say that spiritually speaking, if for no other reason, this was an impassable barrier. If a man went beyond this barrier with sin in his heart or life, if a man went beyond this barrier with the wrong spirit, the wrong attitude, even if he was the high priest, even if it was on the Day of Atonement, God would strike him dead. When they looked at that veil, they didn't see life, they saw death. The Bible tells us this and time would fail us. Well, it may just have to fail us. But when we'll get into it in a moment, the Bible tells us one of the things that happened on the day that Christ died, is that that veil was rent in twain. And now there is a new path that is laid into the presence of God. It is not in any way, shape, fashion, or form through uh, Old Testament Levitical worship, but rather it's through who? Well, the Bible says this, uh, it's uh, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. There is a new path that has been laid. Now, let me tell you something. It's a better path. It's not just a new path. It's a better path. I'd rather go through Jesus than go through that Old Testament veil. There's a new, there's a path that's been laid. And look at verse 21. We must hasten. The Bible says this, And having an high priest over the house of God. A price has been paid. A path has been laid. But number three, a priest has been made. Now, I want to qualify that word made. We understand that he has an eternal priesthood. He is uh, called after the priesthood of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And you say, well, preacher, who was Melchizedek? I'll tell you right now, you ready? You got your pens out? It was Melchizedek. That's who it was. It was Melchizedek. (laughs) We could argue uh, interminably about who it was. We could argue about it being Christ. We could argue about it being any number of people. Uh, If you want to know my honest opinion, I probably believe it was Seth. Uh, You can, or not Seth, but Shem. Not Seth. Seth, but an old, amen. But I think it was probably Shem. Now, you can disagree with that, and that's fine, and we can fight, but you've got to buy me lunch if we do, amen. So, uh, but irrespective of who it was, can I tell you this? He was called after the order of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek was called after the order of him. He preempted Melchizedek. I understand he has an eternal priesthood, but you know, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, there, that, uh, the, mm, there was not access to God through the means of that priesthood. God had set up an order upon this earth that through the means of Levitical worship and the Levitical priesthood uh, that there would be an arbiter in man's relationship with God. But I'm glad to report that's been done away with, that's been abolished. And now we have an high priest over the house of God. We have one to intercede for us who's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And now in this new dispensation of grace, I do not have to go to a human priest. And, and let me just say this, uh, Catholic priest was never what? A priest looked like, even in the Old Testament. 
Their idea of priesthood don't look nothing like Levitical priesthood. But even so, I'm glad that no human being has to intervene or intercede in between mine and my relationship with God. Why? Because, hey, listen, the Son of God intercedes between me and God. So in other words, there are some realities about this better way that Paul speaks of. But then notice the resources of this better way. I told you a moment ago, this is the culmination, right? This is the, 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 the climax moment of this argument. This is the apex or the acme of this argument that Paul is setting forth. But you know, we'll find for each of these statements when we go back a little bit, that Paul has already expanded and expounded upon all these different things. And in doing so, he has enumerated for us what this means for us. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, listen, I'm glad it's not just the reality of a better way. There are some resources in this better way as well. It's not just left to my imagination. There are some concrete truths that inform and and equip my relationship with God. This is not just a new way of looking at an old thing. But in fact, this was a new way of approaching to God. And what did it mean for us? Well, let's go back and look at those verses again. Verse 19 says this, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, Paul's already spoken about this in chapter number 9. You can turn back there with me. We'll read a couple verses now and a few more here in a little while from this chapter. But he began chapter number 9 by detailing sort of the, the dimensions and furniture and appointments of the Old Testament uh, form of, of worship. He talks about in verse number 1, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. And, and he goes on to describe what all these different tabernacle uh, appointments and furnitures were. And he comes down to verse number 7. I want you to notice this. He's talking about the holy places that the priests could go to. And then he says this, But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet Standing Sort of sounds like to me the first tabernacle had to be torn down before the second tabernacle could be instituted. Let me say that again. seems to me like the first tabernacle had to be torn down so the second tabernacle could be standing. That's why Paul says, if I rebuild the things which Christ has destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Uh, that first tabernacle had to be destroyed so that the second tabernacle uh, could stand. He says in verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Tells you this, that form of worship was not permanent. God was going to come in and reform that form of worship. He was going to renovate and revive and change and reimagine that form of worship. Well, when did that happen? Verse 11. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, But by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for 
us. I want to keep reading. It ain't in my notes, but I want to keep reading. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, He is describing how that Christ has provided access to us for a relationship with God. Can I tell you one of the great things about New Testament Christianity is we can get to God. We have access to God. It's not just that there is a path. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it's that there is the possibility. You understand that in the Old Testament, as righteous as a man may be in his own energy and his own strength, that never would produce for him a relationship with God. It was always and only by faith that he could approach unto God. But even in that approach unto God, he did not have the richness or the resources that you and I have today in this dispensation of grace. You and I, we have access... To the Lord. Notice three things in uh, verse 19 of chapter 10 that denote this. Notice number one, we have access as brethren. I like that phrase, having therefore brethren. I like that word, brethren. You know what it tells me? I'm part of the family. I'm not a stranger visiting. I'm part of the family. I, I, I don't have to knock to come in. I'm part of the family. I, I don't have, hey, listen, I don't have to ask before I get in the fridge. I'm part of the family. I get to use the good bathroom. I'm part of the family. My relationship with God is not on strange, unfamiliar, and distant terms. But rather, I can come as a brother to Christ in the same way that He approaches His heavenly Father, I can approach His and my heavenly Father as well. He speaks of with, uh, with a family relationship as brethren. I like this second word. He says this, boldness. Not only as brethren, but we can come in with boldness. We don't have to come in with fear and timidity. And I think it is healthy to fear the Lord in the sense that the Old Testament uh, invokes us to do so, like the book of Proverbs speaks of. And certainly we should have a reverence when we come into the presence of God. But we don't have to sneak in like some timid mouse. We can come in boldly into the throne room of grace. We don't have to come in and wonder if God's going to strike us dead. And I'm going to be honest. I've prayed prayers that God probably should have struck me dead over. But I've never once feared when I prayed a prayer that God was going to strike me dead. I have never once, as I drew close to God, worried that He would smite me to death. Now, He probably should have. But I've never had to worry about it. I've been able to approach with boldness. How do we do this? Well, here's how. Uh, boldness to enter into the holiest. How? By the blood of Jesus. This is what Paul was speaking of in chapter number 9 when he spoke about the blood of bulls and of goats, the ashes of an heifer sprinkling to the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. He didn't say of the soul or of the spirit. He said the purifying of the flesh. Meaning that when those sacrifices and offerings were given, it stayed the wrath of God such that they could come in and perform the service of the tabernacle. But we have something better now. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The Bible tells us, Back in verse number 10, that the appeasing of men's conscience, their boldness, their confidence to come into the presence of God, it stood in meats and drinks and divers, washings and carnal ordinances that were imposed upon them until the time of reformation. I'm glad my standing with God is not based upon whether I eat shellfish. 
mainly because I like shellfish. I'm glad it's not based upon the composite of the the fabric that I'm wearing. I understand it's talking about the prayer shawl. I understand it's talking about the priesthood. I understand all that. But I'm saying I'm glad it's not predicated on those things. I'm glad it's predicated on something deeper, something stronger. I'm glad it's based upon something bigger than just my feeble works. But it's based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I can come in. I have access to a relationship with God. Then notice the second thing in these resources. And that's verse 20. He says this, by a new and living way. Oh, I like that. By a new and living, not a dying way. I'm not waiting to die to have a relationship with God. It's a new and living way. He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. When you got born again, you, 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 you broke, you broke up with death. One of these days you're going to see it in a Walmart again. But your relationship with it is ended. You understand? It doesn't get to govern you. It doesn't get to dominate you. It doesn't get to drive you. It doesn't get to, to, to pin you in and fence you off. If, if it does, you're letting it. But it shouldn't get to. Why? Because we've been delivered uh, from the bondage of fear of death uh, by a new and living way which He hath consecrated for us. Now that word consecrate is a good Bible word. It means to set apart for a distinct purpose. To set apart for a distinct, a distinct calling. It can denote the idea of cleansing, but only if cleansing is necessary. Something that's clean can still be consecrated. Something that's not nascently wicked or, or, or unrighteous can still be consecrated. We are to be consecrated as believers. Set apart for the purpose and call and cause of Christ, which He hath consecrated for us. How did He do that? How did He set up and establish this new way? Through the veil? That is to say, His flesh. In other words, we've got to go through the flesh of Jesus to get to God. I think probably the clearest illustration of this is in the Old Testament, when a man by the name of Jacob decided that he wanted the birthright And so he goes into the presence of his father Isaac. He doesn't deserve the birthright. He has not earned the birthright. He should not rightly have the birthright. That belonged to his older brother Esau. The Bible says Esau was a man of the field. He was a hairy man. That means he was a man's man. And uh, Esau was out in the field and so... Here's what, uh, here's what Jacob did. The Bible says that him and his mother Rebecca, they devised a plan. They went and they took the, the skins of, uh, of goats and, and put upon hair upon his arms and, and put the smell of the field upon him and, and, and went in and he, he feigned himself as Esau. And Esau, here's what he did. He smelled, or, J, or Isaac, here's what he did. He smelled Esau. The Bible tells us in the book of Ephesians, we're made a sweet savor unto God through Jesus Christ. He, he heard Jacob. He affected his voice and he heard Esau. Hey, listen, I'm glad when we go to pray, uh, we don't do it in our own strength or energy. And it doesn't mean we don't do it in our own intelligence, but it does mean this, that the Spirit of God takes our feeble prayers, straightens them out, turns them around the right way and makes them fit for the ears of God so that the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings and utterings which cannot be discerned. By the way, the tongues crowd wants to say they can be discerned. They say, well, I'm praying in the Spirit and that's why I'm talking gibberish. But then if this person over here, they can interpret for me. But that's not what the book Romans says. The book of Romans says they cannot be discerned. By the way, the term discerned does not mean defined. It means discerned. It means they're not groanings and utterings you hear. 
but you by faith recognize that the Spirit itself is making intercession for you. So here's what he did. He was, he was old and he was dim in his eyes and he couldn't see. I'm glad, mm, I'm glad he couldn't see because if he could have seen, he would have saw that it wasn't Esau. <laughs> you know, you know, I'm glad he couldn't see because if he would have seen, he would have seen that it wasn't Esau. So here's what he did instead. He listened and he smelled and he felt and he said, That'll pass for Esau. Hey, you know the same thing happens in our relationship with God. He said, Preacher, can he see what I am? He can, but he chooses not to. He says, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. But here's what he does. He smells the sweet savor of the sacrifice of Christ. He hears the intercession of the Spirit of God. He feels the dear, righteous, immaculate presence of His Son. And here's what he does. He accepts us in His stead. In other words, His righteousness stands for our righteousness. His relationship stands for our relationship. We see in this passage three things I'll mention in passing. Notice number one, the reference to the veil, the barrier, the the, the wall between man and God. But can I remind you in the book of Matthew that veil was rent. It was rent in twain. And you say, well, preacher, who rent it? God rent it. The Bible says it was rent from the top to the bottom. Samson in all of his strength couldn't have rent it in that way. And man in all of his religion couldn't have rent it in that way. It had to be rent that way by the very hand of God. And now that veil has been replaced. What is it replaced with? It's replaced with the flesh of Christ. The person of Jesus Christ. That barrier was a, was a stop sign. It was a woe to mankind to say, you can't approach to me because that veil represented the righteousness of Christ. Time would fail to talk about it all. In the colors, it reminded us of Christ. In the composition, it reminded us of Christ. In the capability, it reminded us of Jesus Christ. And I encourage you to go back study everything you can about that veil but let me give you the end of the story it was rent and replaced with the flesh of Jesus Christ so what does that mean preacher it means this Christ said I'm the way the truth and the life no man cometh unto the father but by me you're going to have to go through him this world spends all of its energy avoiding Jesus a lot of churches spend all their energy avoiding Jesus That's part of the reason churches don't want no Bible preaching in them. They're scared they might bump into Jesus in its pages. And He might have something to say about it. Hey, listen, uh, but I'm telling you this. If you're going to have a relationship with God, you're going to have to have something to do with Him. It's Him with whom we have to do. We're going to have to deal with Him. I see the avenue to a relationship with God. Paul's already spoke of this. Oh, there I went and let you know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We've kept it a secret from you all these years. And I just slipped up, told you it was Paul that wrote the book of Hebrews. But look at look at back in chapter 9, verse 15. Why is that possible? Well, it's possible because the veil was rent, and it's possible because his flesh was rent. Verse 15 says this, For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. The mediator. That's the administrator. He's the mediator. If you want to be a part of the New Testament, you're going to have to come to him. He's the mediator of it. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. By the way, can I just pause there? He's speaking of Israel as a people there. And he's saying, you know, the problem is Israel, just like every other Gentile, had all through that old dispensation stacked up debt. 
and they could not rectify that debt. But Jesus Christ came alone, along and He didn't die for just Gentile, He died for Jew as well. It's funny, we read the book of Romans and we think the purpose is to convince Jews that He also died for Gentiles. But that's not why Paul lays forth the argument He does in, in Romans and in Galatians. Rather, He's setting forth the argument not to Jews that He also died for Gentiles, but to Jews that He indeed also died for Jews. The argument is not, hey, the Gentiles get in on it as well. The argument is, this is why you both need Jesus Christ. Jew or Gentile alike, you both need Jesus Christ. And they likewise had stacked up this big debt. So what did he do? Hey, listen, by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, those that were never dealt with by the blood of bulls and of goats, that they which are called, and he's talking about Israel as a people, that they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. The law never gave them what Abraham was looking for. Only the Lord could give them what Abraham was looking for. The law could never give them that city whose builder and maker was God. The the law could never give them that adoption of sons. Only the Lord could do that. And so He did. Verse 16 says this, For a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Again, we, we we don't have the time to really take as big a bite out of this as I wish we could. But a testament speaking of a will. Of a will. Uh, we uh, don't use this terminology a lot anymore, but if you ever set in on a will reading, um, they'll talk about this as the last will and testament. What is a testament? It's a testimony from beyond the grave. It's a way of saying, I am declaring, I am testating that these are my wishes and this is what I want. Now, this is why religion without regeneration is an impossibility. Because you can't get in on the inheritance except through the death of Jesus Christ. It's His inheritance. He has to die for you to enter into it. This, by the way, is why a person must identify with Christ through the cross of Calvary. Because only through doing so can they be made partakers of this eternal inheritance. I I, I see the avenue of relationship with God, and I must hasten. uh, Verse number 21 says this. Ooh, man, there's too much here. I'm just going to be honest. I'm I'm having that moment I have in almost every sermon where I go, Toby, why'd why'd you cook this much food? Verse 21 says this, And having an high priest over the house of God. I'm glad we have a high priest. This is what Paul has said about it in chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. And you know, that that's, that's an interesting statement we should make. He could have been born of the tribe of Levi and been a priest, but he wasn't. Not once through his entire earthly ministry did he ever go behind that veil. You know why? Because his work wasn't behind that veil. His ministry wasn't behind that veil. His ministry was behind another veil. His ministry was not at that mercy seat. His ministry was at another mercy seat. He could have been born of the tribe of Levi. And I understand all the prophecies regarding the son of David and the tribe of Judah. That's not lost on me. I've read my Bible uh, at least a quarter of the way through. And so I, I'm aware of that too. But I'm just telling you this morning, he, he wasn't born a priest. He was born the payment. He wasn't born the son of Levi. He was born the sacrificial lamb. He didn't come in this earthly life to administer a priesthood, but rather to administer a payment. But now He sits 
as a high priest. He, he, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the truth, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We have not just access to a relationship with God and an avenue to a relationship with God, but we have an administrator of a relationship with God. I wonder sometimes how I have any friends. I'm just being honest with you. I look at my life, my character, my personality. Y'all, y'all didn't laugh at that. I understand. And I think to myself, I, you know, I, I can hold it together long enough to make a friend, but sometimes I wonder how I ever keep any of them. And I'll tell you this, and this is the problem, by the way, with the work salvation crowd. They say, I can earn it. You can't. But even if you could, you think you'd keep it? <laughs> hey, listen, I got news for you. People are about to understand that just because you can drive off the lot with it don't mean you get to keep it. Just because they hand you the keys and the title of the deed, it doesn't mean you get to keep it. You don't just got to get it, you got to keep it. And I'll tell you this, I'm glad the Bible did not prescribe a work salvation because... Even if I could have mustered all my energy, if I could have eaten all my spiritual Wheaties and got up and lived like a saved person for 30 seconds, it wouldn't have been long. I would have lost it. So I'm glad there's an administrator of my relationship with a heavenly Father. Notice two things about him. Number one, he is a capable high priest. The Bible says, <laughs> the Bible says, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he have often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once, once in the end of the world, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, preacher, he's only going to appear once. He's only appeared once for that reason. When he comes back, he's not coming back to do that again. He's already done what he's going to do in regards to the purchasing of man's redemption. When he said it is finished on the cross, it was finished on the cross. Not it's finished when you get baptized. Not it's finished when you keep the law. Not it's finished when you join a church. Not it's finished when you teach a Sunday school class or serve God or pass out a tract. He said it is finished. It's done. Therein, by the way, lies the proprietary nature of the way of God. All of man's religious devices can only say do. But only the cross of Calvary says done. Finished. Over. And in doing so, hey, listen, he don't have to come back and do it again. He's done it. He is a capable high priest. But not only that, chapter 4 reminds us he is a compassionate high priest. I like it. We have not in high priests which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. You say, preacher, that's a double negative. We'll quit being negative. Don't you critique God's grammar. He's the first one ever spoke. I reckon he knows what he's doing. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly on the throne of grace. (laughs) 
Let us therefore come boldly. Why, why, why do we come boldly? Because we have a high priest that is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's a compassionate high priest. You better be glad I ain't your priest. Ha! I'll never understand why somebody would want a human priest. I've never met more rotten, despicable creatures walking the face of the earth than humans. I mean, listen, I, I've met dogs. I'd rather be my high priest than some of y'all. Hey, find every criticism you can find. Everything, pick apart. Give no quarter. Give no grace. Give no mercy. I'm glad I'm not your high priest. I'm glad you're not mine. I'm glad we have a compassionate high priest. He's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. So we see in this passage the reality of a better and new way. We see the resources of that better and new way. But finally, and I'll be done this morning, I want you to notice the responsibility of a better way. You see, all this that Paul has been saying is going to be imported into the practicality of our life. And I will tell you this. Hey, listen, doctrine doctrine is not personal. Doctrine is is mm, immutable. What's true is true. Whether you like it, whether I like it, whether we agree, whether we see it that way, it doesn't matter. It's funny. People say, well, I don't see it that way. I don't really care. <laughs> and I hope you don't care too, by the way. I, I, I'm not trying to be a smart aleck. I, I, we shouldn't, what should matter is what the Bible says. You'd be amazed how much of Christianity has nothing to do with the Bible. You'd be amazed how much of Christianity has nothing to do with the Bible. I think if we restrained ourselves to using only biblical terminology, it would help us a lot. Words that can be defined biblically because a lot of the problems that we run into in our worldview and in our minds come from extra-biblical perspective. I'm not saying there aren't things that are true outside of the Bible. I'm saying everything that we need in regards to truth is within the Bible. There are true things outside of, of the Bible. I, I don't know if the Bible ever says the sky is blue. I, I, if, if, I guess if it does, that's why it is blue. But irrespective of that, it really doesn't matter. The truth I need is contained within these pages. I, people say, well, you, you want to put God in the box. Well, if, it's okay for God to be outside of the box, but He's not going to be outside of the Bible. You understand? We might build a box he don't fit in, but he's not going to exist and dwell and live outside of the parameters of this Bible. It is not hateful to define God in the terms of his own book. It's not narrow-minded to perceive and, and, and view God through the parameters and, and, and characteristics that he set forth in his own word. And, and so all this that has been given, it's all leading up to a practical application of this. Doctrine is immutable, it's unchangeable, but it is also meaningless if it does not inform the way we live our lives. That, by the way, is the reason that what we believe matters. Evil communication corrupteth good manners. If, we, if we're listening to the wrong things, it's going to affect us in the wrong way. If we are, and I understand, we live in this worldview today where being a metropolitan person exposed to every viewpoint and worldview imaginable is viewed as a laudable thing. Like we just need to be, and for a lot of years that has driven our perspective on educating our children. Can't figure out why they're a bunch of neo-pagans. We've only exposed them to every error and heresy that has walked the face of the earth. I'm just telling you this, if, if we allow that, then it's going to change 
a person's worldview. So our doctrine, listen, it, it informs how we live. And this is why people say, well, I don't get into doctrine. You ought to try it. You really should. You'd be amazed what it can do for you. And, and so all this, Paul says, I've made this whole argument. And now how does it change our lives? Well, he mentions three things that should re- result from it. Notice verse 22. And now remember, he began in verse 19 saying, having therefore. And then he listed some things. He says, because we got these things, this is what we should do. Number one, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. By the way, the, the sprinkling, we'll get there in a moment, and our bodies washed with pure water. What do we need to do? First thing, what's the responsibility of this better way? And by the way, I don't just mean this is a responsibility because you are, have partaken in this better way. I mean, this is a responsibility because you have access to this better way. You have access to it. So I'm saying this to lost people. If you're here and lost, I, I don't know. I don't know any man's heart's condition. I don't see a single strange face in this crowd. I know everyone that's here, but I, I don't know your heart. I, you might be as lost as can be. And, and I'm not saying you are. I'm saying you could be. And you and God would know that. And I'm saying this to you. If you're here and lost, it's not enough to say, well, preacher, that ain't got anything to do with me because I ain't a part of that. I ain't believed. On... Oh, no, listen, one of these days, lost and saved alike, you're going to be judged by this book. And so it is incumbent upon you to what? Number one is to draw near. How do we do that? Notice, number one, we do it with a close confidence. Let us draw near how? With a true heart in full assurance of faith. We do it, number one, in sincerity. We do it in sincerity. He says with a true heart. What does it mean for a person's heart to be true? It means for it to be without guile. Christ made this statement about about Nathaniel whenever he was called into the ministry. He, he said, an Israelite indeed in whom is no guile. By the way, I want you to notice God's definition of an Israelite indeed was one with no guile. I say that to say but mm, one with no guile. He says, this is what an Israelite should be when he looks at Nathaniel. He says, this is what an Israelite should be. One with no God. Nathaniel didn't have everything figured out. He didn't have everything right. He doubted whenever he first heard word of Christ. But I'll I'll say this for him. He was honest. He was honest. There's no cure for dishonesty. If you won't be honest with yourself, there's no one can help you. God in heaven can't help you if you won't be honest with yourself. So here's the first thing. We've got to have a true heart. And then we do it here in full assurance of faith. How can we do that? You say, preacher, you're telling me that I can pray to God and know He hears me? Yes. Preacher, you're telling me that I can lean on God and know He'll be there? Yes. Preacher, you're telling me that if I need strength, I can ask God for it and I can expect it? Yes. You know why? Well, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. You know, by by a new and living way, which you have consecrated for us uh, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God. If you got all those things, yeah, absolutely, in full assurance of faith. He says with a close confidence, number two, with a clear conscience. He says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. There's two times in the Bible that sprinkling is spoken of. Neither of them have anything to do with baptism. In the Old Testament, sprinkling is used in two different ways. One, whenever the people in the book of the law were consecrated, Moses took hyssop, dipped it in blood, and sprinkled it upon the people. That's not what uh, the Hebrews writer is talking about here, because here in a moment he's going to talk about their bodies being washed with pure water. 
And here's what the second occasion of sprinkling had to do with in the Old Testament. And it wasn't blood, but rather it was water. In fact, what it was was water that was mixed with the ashes of a red heifer. And before the Old Testament priest could go in and minister, they had to be consecrated, they had to be cleansed, and they would take these ashes of a red heifer that had been mixed with water and sprinkle them upon the high priest. Now, that didn't do a thing for his B.O. And it didn't make him more righteous. But here's what it did. It ceremonially cleansed him. It gave him a clear conscience going before God because what had been prescribed had been performed. That, by the way, is the reason today uh, that that so many, uh, you know, people uh, have such an obsession with the idea of breeding a red heifer. And I want to just tell you this. uh, God is done with that system. He's not looking for a red heifer to... I expect this, that the one that owns the cattle on a thousand hills could find a red one if he wanted to. He's not interested in that. If they found a red heifer, if it passed all the rabbinical standards, all of the genetic testing, all of the DNA scrutiny, and they sacrificed it, and they uh, took and and burned it on a brazen altar, and, and took the ashes and mixed it with water and sprinkled it on them, God would yawn at it. Actually, God would probably rail against it. Because it would be to tread underfoot the blood of the Son of God. Because there remaineth therefore no sacrifice. There's nothing left. He's moved on from that system. And so here's what he's done. Through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, through his finished work on Calvary, now our conscience can be purified, consecrated, sprinkled, or having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And then he says this, and our bodies washed with pure water. That, by the way, was the next thing they would do, is they would take that ceremonial water and they would wash themselves in it. And therein, the one was speaking of an internal cleansing, the next was speaking of an external cleansing. The one was speaking about their their uh, their relationship or, or their, their, uh, their, their conscience being cleansed, the next was speaking of their conduct being cleansed. And I would say this, preacher, how do we draw near? With a close confidence, with a clear conscience. In other words, we can go before God knowing our sin debt has been dealt with. And then number three, with a clean condition. With a clean condition. What a shame it would be to have the potential, the opportunity to go into the presence of God and not regard it or value it high enough to even be willing to confess our sin to God and to ask His forgiveness. Here's what we ought to do, number one, to draw near. Number two, look at verse 23. Here's the second thing we ought to do. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful that promised. The first is to draw near. The second, you say, preacher, we got a better way. What do we do? The second is this, hold fast. Hold fast within. You still with me this morning? Did you eat your Wheaties, your Cheerios this morning? You all right? Uh, listen, if, if I ain't war slap out preaching, you ain't war slap out listening. Not yet. You hang with me this morning. You'll be all right. You spent this much time watching, watching the, the, the idiot box yesterday. You'll be okay. I'm telling you this. Hey, listen, we have a responsibility to stand in this old time way. We have a responsibility to stand fast in Bible Christianity. What do we stand in? Well, notice the substance of our Stand. He says this, let us hold fast the profession of our faith. What does that mean? We think of a profession as being synonymous with a person's relationship with God. Because when a person gets saved, we'll say, well, we have this many professions. And I'm not necessarily opposed to using that, that verbiage, but that's not what he's talking about. 
He is writing to first century Jews, some of which have believed on Christ and are under intense personal, familial, and cultural and religious pressure to renounce Jesus Christ and to take back upon them the mantle of Moses. And he's saying, don't do it. Hold fast your profession of faith. You've told people you're a Christian. Don't back down on that. (laughs) We're getting ready to learn what it means. We're getting ready to learn what it means to have a society that is not just culturally inclined to ostracize us, but is legally uh, in line to criminalize us. All over the world it's happening. And it won't be long. In some places it is here. And I'll tell you this. What's the substance? What are we called to do? Well, we're called to hold fast the profession of our faith. Notice the standard of our stand. He says this without wavering. Without wavering. We live in a world of wavering people. Wavering. What does it mean to waver? Well, it means to tilt one way or the other. However the wind blows. You know why something wavers? Too much external pressure on it. And not enough internal force and resilience within it. If our Christianity is defined externally by our circumstances, we'll be pushed whatever direction the wind blows. But if rather internally we have settled our soul on the truth of the Word of God, the value and preciousness of it, we will have the rigidity to stand in a wavering days. I see the standard, and then I notice this, I notice the source of it. He says this, for he is faithful that promised. He is faithful that promised. Now, there's two ways you could read this, and I'm not mad at either of them, but I do think there's a correct way. Uh, One could read this as saying, well, he won't quit, you shouldn't quit either. I can't argue with that. I'll tell you this, if for no other reason he didn't quit on us, we shouldn't quit on him. But I don't think that's the way that the author intends it here. I think rather what he means is this, we can be faithful Because He is faithful. Because we're drawing our strength from Him. And He never wavers. We have no excuse to waver either. I'll tell you this. You might quit, but you don't have to. You listening? You might quit. I don't know. I might quit. I don't know. But we don't have to. If we do it, it's not because that was the only option. It's because we chose the coward's way out. You don't have to quit, man. You don't have to. I, I see, I see, we're called to draw near, to hold fast. And then all the people that want to go to Shoney say amen when I tell you this is the last point. I like verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Can I remind you that when Paul writes this, Assembling together involved much peril and much danger. You know, really for us, I mean, if you can survive the, you know, I-40 traffic, you, you, you know, you're home clear, right? We don't live in a day where there's much danger. We, we, at times we believe, but there's not. We didn't really, we, we didn't have to fight through roadblocks and things like that to get here. There's not much dangerous, but then there was. And there were people that were saying, we can't meet, it's too dangerous. We can't meet, it's too dangerous. Don't get tense on me. I just, I'm just telling you. There's people saying, we can't meet, it's too dangerous. And Paul says in response to that, hey, don't go with that crowd. 
Don't forsake the assembling yourselves together. There's some that will always have an excuse to quit. But he's saying you should not do that. I would say it this way, to draw near, to hold fast, but number three, to press on. To press on. He says don't forsake, press on. Don't give up, press on. What do we press on in number one in provoking? Ah, Some of us are good at that. If there was an Olympic category, verse 24 says let us consider one another to provoke, not unto aggravation, not unto a response, but unto love and to good works. In other words, he's saying don't give up on God, but don't give up on each other either. Keep provoking one another unto love and to good works. Provoke, it means to stoke a fire. Provoke, don't give up on one another. You stoke a fire because it started to wane, it started to burn low. We're living in a day, a lot of Christians are burning low. And it'd be real easy just throw in the towel, say, well, forget on all of them, I don't care anymore, it doesn't matter. But in light of all that Christ has done for us, how can we? Listen, we ought to press on in provoking. Then notice he says this, uh, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, in assembling, in assembling. Man, it'd be a shame for him to do all this for us to have a church and us not even go to it. (laughs) That's deep, right? You got what you paid for today. He loved the church and gave himself for it. We won't get up and go to it. Hey, listen, in assembling, notice this, in exhorting. He says, but exhorting one another. Exhorting, what does it mean? Well, it means to challenge and encourage to activity. To exhort, it means to communicate with one another with the goal and with the design that a person might improve themselves and might go on. And here's what it means. It means encouraging each other. Encouraging each other. We live in a day that people are severely atomized. They're retracting into themselves. They're pulling away. And I understand why. It's gross outside. I get it. Have you been to Walmart? I'm the same way. I, 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 it's easy to be like, I, I'm just, I'm done with society. But I can't do that. I wish I could. If I could, I would. You'd never, hey, mm. But no, we've got to go on. We've got to go on in exhorting. And then finally, I like this. And so much the more. Not sometimes a little less, but so much the more. How much? More. How much? More. How much? Well, how much are you doing right now? Well, this much. More. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Press on in provoking, assembling, exhorting, and in looking. Looking for Jesus to come. Looking for His soon return. The day's approaching. The day is approaching. You know, Paul, it's fascinating in the Pauline epistles, of which the book of Hebrews is, fight me over it. Uh, Paul talked about a few days. Really only talked about two days. He talked about today. And then he talked about that day or the day. And part of the secret to Paul's life is he only ever lived in, in two days. Today and the day. That day. What was that day? That day was the day of His appearing. That day was the day of Him seeing Christ. That day was the day in which He would give an account for the way He lived His life. Can I tell you this? Yesterday and tomorrow will paralyze you. But if you can learn to live in today and that day, 
you'll find your life radically transformed. And so Paul, he said this, we ought to be looking for. Looking for. Not ignoring, but looking for. And what will that do? It'll produce in us an urgency, a devotedness, a a committedness, an absolute lavishing of commitment to Christ. So much the more. So much the more. Let me use this word, relentless. Relentless. I'll tell you this, we got a better way. We got a better way. And with that better way comes a lot of blessings. But with it comes the burden of responsibility as well. I wonder if we're living and walking in light of and in reverence to that better way. Let's bow together this morning. Musician will come and play. I've already preached my message. And if you need to do business with God, you don't have to wait for me to pray or wait for a single note to be played. You can right now immediately find a place at the altar. And you can go ahead and get busy talking with the Lord. Father, bless this invitation. Lord, I pray that it magnify Jesus. And I pray that every person in this room that has business to do with you, Lord, would not leave here with unfinished business. But they'd come down, they'd bow their heart and head before you, and they'd, they'd, they'd confess their, their hearts and minds, their lives unto you, and see you do a work in them. Father, bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name.